This is hell. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Thankfully, slavery in the United States by the time the Civil War inevitably happened. Slavery had been contained within the 15 states that made up the Confederacy in the southeast region of the United States. Sure, we now know that at one time slavery was happening as far north as places like Buffalo, Detroit, And here in Chicago, with slavers operating freely east of the Mississippi River, capturing even free black people and shuttling them back south to be auctioned off into the brutal system of chattel slavery. Luckily, the West was spared the cruel business of slavery, and the peculiar institution was limited to south of the Mason-Dixon line and east of the mighty Mississippi which is what we are told in history classes through the writing of historians who are greatly revered, even seen as national heroes, but that history is simply not true. The West was not this place unscathed by slavery. In fact, slavery was happening all over the West, and not only to people of African descent. And we erase that slavery from history with Western novels and movies depicting the frontier West as full of opportunities to prove your rough, tough American individualistic self, perpetuating the myth of American exceptionalism that is part of the foundation of white privilege and white supremacy. And without recognizing and confronting that transcontinental nature of slavery and the South's worldwide plans for slavery, white privilege and supremacy will continue to be with us for a very, very long time. Our guest today is 19th century U.S. political historian Kevin Waite, author of West of Slavery, the Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire. Kevin is assistant professor of history at Durham University. This is Kevin's first book, but he is already work on his, at work on his second with co-author Sarah Berenger-Gordon. It's a new book that reconstructs the life and times of Biddy Mason, a Georgia slave-turned-California real estate entrepreneur. The book's called The Long Road to Freedom, Biddy Mason and the Making of Black Los Angeles. Kevin's scholarly articles and book chapters have covered a wide range of topics, manliness and Napoleonic-era English public schools, the political struggle over America's first transcontinental railroad, as we'll be discussing today, the evolving myth of George Armstrong Custer in Hollywood film, the Civil War in Indian Territory, Reconstruction in the Trans-Mississippi West, and the Confederate Monuments of 20th Century California, another topic that we'll be touching on today. You can follow Kevin on Twitter, at Kevin A. Waite. That's Kevin A. Waite with an E at the end. It's Tuesday, and our new Tuesday producer is Alex Jerry. Alex, what have you been up to? I inherited a water-sealed fermentation jar from someone who just died. So uh, things are looking up for me. Somebody that you know who died or just no, going even, down the even, alley? Even better. <laughs> so was it an alley find? Uh, no, it was actually uh, someone who died was trying to get rid of people's water-sealed fermentation jar. So I lucked <laughs> out. Maybe one day when I die, someone else will inherit this one. <laughs> so get this. 16 of the 17 biggest outbreaks of coronavirus right now are in Michigan. My home state where I haven't lived for a very long time but I was born and raised there 
The outbreak is driven by a highly infectious variant. The state has loosened restrictions. Travel has expanded. There's been youth sporting events and non-compliance to voluntary safety protocols like wearing masks and social distancing. So it's gone insane in Michigan. The state has seven times the number of infections it had in February. Hospitalizations have doubled in the past two weeks. However, Governor Gretchen Whitmer is refusing to do as the CDC wants her to do, and that is to go back to the basics and close things down like we did during surges of the virus last spring and summer. Instead, Governor Whitmer is asking the CDC to send more vaccines as quickly as possible, but the CDC insists that won't fix the problem as we still don't know everything about the virus or the vaccine, like whether those who are fully vaccinated can still transmit the virus to those who have only had one dose, who only recently got their second dose, or who are not yet vaccinated at all. And now with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine being paused over concerns of potentially dangerous blood clots. We have fewer vaccines to fight the pandemic. Governor Whitner, uh, Whitmer uh, does not want to close things down, as the CDC advises, because the last time she did, there was an armed insurgency in the state capitol building's visitors section above the state legislature as they voted on the lockdown that the armed mob overseeing them opposed. To avoid legislators casting votes in bulletproof vests again, Whitmer is instead begging for more shots and asking people to be nice. So, guess where we've decided to go to celebrate three weeks after we have been fully vaccinated? Of course, I'm going to Michigan. Which brings us to this week's question from hell. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is... What have you been right about this whole time? What have you been right about this whole time? I have been right about this whole time. <sighs> Michigan will do everything wrong, even if it leads to countless unnecessary deaths, as doing everything wrong is pure Michigan. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Remember, This Is Hell is completely listener supported. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question following Kevin Waite. Not only can you email us, tweet to us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. We got an email from Doro, who writes, Hey, Chuck and Alex, this is Doro writing from Germany. Man, I'm so glad your program exists. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I get that good European Zosselstadt money, unemployment money, and I'd love to help out with the remote stuff. Still need anyone? Let me know. Good day, Doro. Thanks, Doro. The remote work we will need will be helping the rebuild of our website so we can give everyone access to every show we've ever done, every interview, every hangover cure, every rotten history. And we are going to have a searchable database so you will be able to go to the site, look up a topic, and down the this is how rabbit hole you go. If you have already expressed interest in helping out, Alex will be contacting you soon about the work needed to be done. If you're interested in helping out, email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook. We also got an email from Rue, who listens in Glasgow. Rue writes, Hi folks, so glad to have recently rediscovered This Is Hell after dropping off for a couple of years. 
Welcome back, Rue. I thought I recognized your name. Your episode on hypnosis and the music industry's future was what did it for me, and it reminded me that this is hell really is where it's at for not the media on the forefront of world news, and it's interesting and oft-depressing developments. Just wanted to email you in a guest suggestion. As many of us have, I've been rethinking what's important to me this past while. And to put a long story short... It's led me to an interest in growing some of my own food. What can I say? It's satisfying, wholesome, and everything neoliberalism is not. A big part of this move for me has been the book The Vegan Book of Permaculture by Graham Burnett. It's sort of a cookbook, but really it's just a great and entertaining guide to incorporating a more rewarding and sustainable way of thinking into your life. It breaks action down into concentric zones, which are literally the spaces in your life which you can try and organize to most efficiently service you and your community. And that sounds like those concentric zones, what are they called? The Thorin Zones, I think? Nature's metropolis, they talk about it when it comes to economic geography. It's the kind of thing that could be kind of bogus and self-helpy, but it's very far from it. It's a practical guide which basically says, step one, why not grow some salad on your windowsill? I've attached a passage from the book which I think might sell you on getting Graham on for a chat. Would love to hear an interview. Keep up the good work. If I'm ever in Chicago, I'd love to stop by for office hours. Rue from Glasgow. The passage Rue includes states... In contrast to our fast food and quick fix culture, permaculture is about practicing protracted and thoughtful observation instead of looking for instant solutions that in the long run often cause even more damage to a situation. Rather than rushing to address what are often superficial symptoms, the first question a permaculture designer will ask is, what is really going on here? Are your problems in your garden due to a lack of the correct pesticide or is there some imbalance in the wider ecology of your garden? Are high levels of crime in your community best tackled by closed circuit television cameras or by addressing inequality, poverty, and social alienation. So from what I gather, permaculture in this context, as Rue is describing it, as the author that he suggested, Graham Burnett, is describing it, is about taking your time and constantly practicing your observation skills to do the radical work of investigating the root causes of problems. Like we've Learned here on This Is Hell that the root causes of climate change is, the root cause is constant growth. The root cause of immigration problems are the demand by U.S. employers for low-wage labor. The root cause of the pandemic is globalization. And the root cause of the rise of fascism is prioritizing business interests over democratic values. Who knew we were actually practicing permaculture radio? Thanks for the suggestion, Rue. We've had other listeners express interest in permaculture, so we will definitely look into having someone on the show to discuss this topic. You can send us your comments on the show, guest or topic suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. You can DM them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can message us via Facebook Messenger at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or like I said, just send us stuff in the actual mail to thisishell2251 West Devon, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Coming up, there is a lot more slavery happening in a lot more places in the United States before the Civil War than we're told. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what have you been right about this whole time? What have you been right about this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our swag right now at thisishell.com. When you click on support, Alex will be telling us who is going, and Alex will be telling us who's going to be on tomorrow's show as well. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. The story we're told is the West here in the United States was never 
really touched by the sin of slavery, that it was never sullied by the peculiar institution which was entrenched in the southeast part of the country. Being free of such a stain, the West was a perfect place for the nurturing of the rough and tough individualistic icon of what it meant to be American in the United States and defines so much of what we are today. Well, it turns out none of that is true, and the master class had succeeded to some extent, to make U.S. slavery transcontinental. They even had global plans that were being set in motion here to help us re-examine and reconsider what slavery really was in the United States, 19th century U.S. political historian Kevin Waite is author of the book West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire. Welcome to This is Hell, Kevin. Thanks, Chuck. It's good to be here. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin A. Waite. That's Kevin A. Waite with an E on the end. You write that as the nation careened towards civil war, a pair of curious tunes rang through the streets and saloons of Los Angeles. And I got to tell you, I tried to find these on YouTube yesterday, and I'm really glad I could not find either one of these two songs. The two songs are called We'll Hang Abe Lincoln in a Tree and We'll Drive the Bloody Tyrant from Our Dear Native Soul. They were not composed in California, but they quickly found favor with the town's rebellious element in the spring of 1861. Through these songs, white Angelinos taunted the region's outnumbered Unionist population and gave voice to their deep-seated Southern allegiances. This is after California became a state 11 years earlier in 1850. So do these Confederate sympathies in California reflect any level of long-standing discontent with being part of the Union, or was this anti-Union sentiment caused by the events that were leading up to the war. Yeah, truth be told, I, I have no idea what those songs sound like either, and I guess I'm sort of glad. Um, but uh, I, I would say that the, the, the longstanding sentiment in California was a sort of a sentiment in favor of slavery. A lot of white Californians, especially in the southern part of the state, um, were from the South originally, uh, and they supported the institution of slavery. And so when um, uh, 11 slave states seceded from the Union and started the Civil War in 1861, they sort of wanted a piece of that action. Um, and that's why they were singing those songs. And that's why a lot of them actually uh, fled California during the war and, and enlisted in Confederate armies. And you write how Californians paraded Confederate symbols through public spaces across the state. They cheered Jefferson Davis and his generals. They bullied federal soldiers stationed at military outposts. And they conspired in ways big and small to turn California against the United States. So so how popular was this rebellion? And when it comes to taunting at military outposts, was there ever any response by the Union military? Yeah, so this this sentiment was pretty popular. I mean, I, I should say from the outset that California remained loyal to the Union. Um, it remained loyal to the Union partly because there were enough federal soldiers in the state to put down these sort of um, pro-Confederate demonstrations. Um, but it was it was touch and go for a while. Um, and even when there was sort of overwhelming force in places like Los Angeles, um, these secessionist hooligans, for want of a better term, still um, sort of pressed the buttons of these federal federal soldiers. And uh, they engaged in fistfights with them. They threw one Union supporter from an upstairs balcony. Um, uh, there were a couple casualties in these encounters with soldiers throughout California. Um, I mean, I guess you could call some of those casualties the westernmost uh, of the Civil War. What role then did these kind of provocative actions play in potentially igniting the actual beginning of the Civil War, or was the Civil War inevitable without these actions? 
Yeah, I think the civil war between North and South was inevitable without these actions. Um, I mean, from a certain perspective, you can say, well, this is a war that killed 750,000 people. What was going on in California was sort of small potatoes. Um, but I think what was more alarming to people like Abraham Lincoln and other U.S. authorities at the start of the war wasn't necessarily these smaller demonstrations in favor of the Confederacy, but the fact that the entire Southwest part of the United States, so really here I'm talking about California and Arizona and New Mexico and Utah, um, was, was on the verge of maybe not joining the Confederacy, but, but looking for alternate paths out of the Union. Um, so we, we always think of the Civil War as this war that fractures the North and the South, which is absolutely true. Um, but it was a war that almost fractured the West into all sorts of different republics or different little secessionist movements. You write that white Angelinos had no discernible tyrants to drive from their native soil in the spring of 1861, as they claimed in their rebel anthem. But they did express a deep sense of kinship built over the preceding decade with the share uh, slaveholders of the South. So how was that kinship built? And was it an intentional project of the South to court the West to their side prior to the Civil War? Because you mentioned political patronage as well. And I can't help but think, because we had a system here in Chicago of political patronage for a very long time, it still kind of exists. But I couldn't help but wonder if this was the uh, the laboratory for that kind of political patronage. So how was that kinship built? And how did that political patronage work? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, Chuck. Um, and, and the West was sort of a laboratory for all sorts of pro-slavery schemes. Um, and, and like you say, the, there were white Southerners who very actively courted support in the far West, in California and, and in New Mexico particularly, because they knew that they needed, um, they, they needed political power uh, and they needed votes in Congress. Um, all white Southerners were, were really concerned about their sort of declining share of the nation's total population. And they thought, well, if, if demographic trends keep going this way, we're going to be a political rump. Um, I mean, it sort of sounds like certain Republican concerns right now. Uh, anyway, uh, so they knew that they needed to cultivate allies outside of the South. Um, and they saw California as, um, as a really sort of likely uh, partner. Um, because California, even though it only contained about, a th its population was probably only a third white Southern, um, it voted with the South on a number of major political issues. Um, and so, like you say, they used political patronage to sort of lure the West into the pro-slavery Southern political orbit. I mean, when, when we think of patronage today, a lot of people don't think of patronage today um, because we have a professional civil service, so it's not as important. But in the 1850s, patronage was big business. Um, these were some of the highest paying jobs in the state of California. I mean, you were more likely to make money as say the collector of customs in San Francisco than you were mining for, for gold uh, outside Sacramento. Um, this was the way to get ahead. And so what these white Southerners basically did is they formed a really powerful, well-oiled political machine and they put all their friends in high places in these patronage offices. So. Um, the uh, uh, the customs house in San Francisco was so packed with these white Southerners on federal sinecures that it became known as the Virginia Poorhouse. Uh, this, this is where a lot of Virginians and other Southerners went to get rich in California. So this sounds like a 
you know, very well planned and organized and executed long term political strategy. Did the South see a war over slavery as an inevitability, something that could not be avoided in any way? Or were they trying to win that war before one shot was ever fired? I think certain white Southerners saw or hoped that some war would be inevitable. Um, There was a small clique of people we call fire eaters who were agitating for a civil war, um, you know, for for basically a decade before it started. Um, But by and large, this was this was a war and it was a political movement that that evolved with changing circumstances. Um, and as the decade went on, the, the South and the West sort of came closer together politically. Until at times, there, it was sort of difficult to, to, to tell where the South ended and where the West began, at least in certain corners of the Southwest, in certain parts of California, for, say, for instance. Back in 2016, we spoke with the historian Andres Resende about his book, The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America, which was a National Book Award finalist. Andres writes about the enslavement of the indigenous that was conducted by the conquistadors and following them in Spanish colonies throughout Mexico and in the western and southwestern United States. Did indigenous enslavement affect the way the West viewed slavery? Absolutely. That's a great book, um, Andres's. Uh, the other slavery. Um, so in the West, there were all sorts, if you wanted to own the labor of other people in the 1850s in the American West, there were all sorts of ways to go about doing it. Um, you could, and plenty of Southerners did, bring their African-American chattel slaves with them. But actually the easiest way to get unfree labor was just to, to buy native labor uh, or to, ensna- uh, to ensnare uh, indigenous people and basically lifelong cycles of debt and, and to make them your peons. So the, the, the numbers are really tricky to get at because nobody was keeping careful records of this, but it's estimated that maybe 500 to 1500 enslaved African-Americans were taken into California during this decade. Um, but uh, thousands, tens of thousands of American Indians were uh, ensnared in all sorts of involuntary uh, labor relations. I know you just said that you really admired the work of Andre Sersende and you liked the book, The Other Slavery. But you also write about the uh, problem with the categorization of slavery. When we only look at, let's say, uh, Native American slavery, or we only look at slavery of those of African descent, what do we miss in our understanding of slavery when we have them basically separated in these different categories? Yeah, I, I hope that critique didn't come across as snotty, but that, that was well said, Chuck. In, in, in the book, I say there's, we know, we know so much about African-American slavery in the South, and we still need to know more, um, but there's a great literature on it. And there's this budding literature on uh, Native American slavery in the American West, um, and, and Andres is at the forefront of that. But we never really consider these two types of, conver- these two types of slavery um, within the same narrative frame. They're, they belong to two separate bodies of historical research. Uh, and so one of the things that my book tries to do is to put them in, in conversation, put them in the same frame and see what happens. Um, because the biggest slaveholders in the United States at the time, the guys in the South, thought really seriously about Native slavery and what it meant for them. Um, so they, they regularly compared plantation slavery in the South to these coercive labor relationships in the West. And they said, well, our, our system is clearly much better. Um, but when... Uh, anti-slavery Northerners tried to outlaw 
uh, native slavery in the West, white Southerners rallied in defense. Uh, and they rallied in defense because they knew that if native slavery was outlawed, it was sort of the lead domino to fall in a process that might actually threaten plantation slavery in the South. So they they built this, what I call it, sort of a transcontinental defense of unfreedom because they knew that one unfree institution sort of depended on the other. And they were successful. Uh, unfree Indian labor wasn't outlawed before the Civil War. In fact, it took decades uh, after the war and after the 13th Amendment for um, for Indian slavery to really be stamped out in the West. And you point out that pro-slavery partisans transformed the Southwest quarter of the nation, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and even parts of Utah, into an appendage of the slave states. Plantation slavery never took root in the region, as some hoped and others feared. But other coercive labor regimes, including the trade in captive Native Americans and the institution of debt peonage, as you were saying, flourished. And African Americans' chattel slavery, while not economically central to the far Western economy, was legally protected nonetheless. So what explains why plantation slavery never took root? Why did the other aspects of slavery take place, but plantation slavery never happened? Is it simply the geography of the area? Yeah, that's a good question, Chuck. And I think that's one of the reasons why historians haven't studied as seriously this topic, the the issue of slavery in the West, because there wasn't all that much African-American chattel slavery in the Southwest, what we we recognize most commonly as as slavery. Um, And one of the reasons was um, that that the environment wasn't terribly hospitable to, you know, large scale cotton agriculture. Actually, now places like New Mexico and California are leading producers of cotton. But at the time, uh, they didn't have the irrigation techniques to make it sustainable. Um, But uh, the the main reason I'd say that uh, African-American chattel slavery didn't really take root in the region is because there was already a surfeit of a different type of slavery, uh, of Native American servitude. And so it was just far easier and far cheaper to ensnare uh, one of tens of thousands of indigenous people in various forms of servitude rather than to bring your own uh, enslaved African-Americans West. I mean, these these were phenomenally expensive pieces of human property that could fetch upwards of $1,000 at a, at a slave auction in New Orleans. So much safer just to, to get much cheaper Indian labor in the West. You also write about the American master class, more formidable and far-reaching than previously imagined. Historians in numerous important works have tracked slaveholders' expansionist projects in the Atlantic world. We now understand how American Southerners, through diplomatic influence, commercial power, and direct assaults on foreign soil, extended their imperial agenda across this swath of the globe. Yet planters' horizons could never be confined to a single ocean basin. While they operated primarily in an Atlantic world, slaveholders lusted after a trans-Pacific dominion. So was the South, prior to the Civil War, were they in competition, direct competition with the Union long before there was a Confederacy? And, And was the Union and the South engaged in parallel imperial wars prior to the Civil War? I think the latter is more accurate, Chuck. Um, Southern slaveholders knew that they needed the power of the federal government and they needed the power of northern shipping in order to make money. Um, So it wasn't until 1861 that they thought that bargain was no longer worth keeping. But when they looked to the Pacific, they saw 
the plantation economy of the South and the more sort of industrial commercial economy of the North as partners and in the same uh, agenda. And they wanted to extend the the cotton trade to China. And actually, they, they were relatively successful in doing that. So cotton was actually America's leading export to China through most of the antebellum period. We, we sort of forget this because the China market wasn't huge at this time, but cotton was number one for the United States. Um, and slaveholders were all about the Chinese market because they saw hundreds of millions of potential consumers in China. I mean, truth be told, they didn't understand a thing about the Chinese and the markets of China, but they knew that there were people there and they thought that they could market their cotton to them. I just recently learned how Confederate naval ships would attack U.S. whaling ships, Union whaling ships in the Pacific. Were they, what, so was there a process by the Confederacy of actually targeting the non-slave trade goods during the Civil War? There, there was it, it manifested more as a fear than than, you know, actually materialized. Um, one of the first things Abraham Lincoln did at the outside of the outset of the war was to suspend the gold shipments from California um, because he was really worried that those would be seized by Confederate privateers. Um, there was there was actually this one sort of quixotic um, Confederate campaign that was launched in California. This one guy called Ashbury Harpending, you can't make these names up, um, recruited a bunch of California Confederates, armed a ship and prepared to sail it out of uh, the San Francisco Harbor. And, and his plan was to capture a whole bunch of gold ships and then to arm them and turn it into like a mini Confederate armada in the, in the Pacific. Uh, he never got out of the port. But the, the fact is the Confederacy was eyeing the, the gold shipments because they knew if they could disrupt them or capture them, they could you know maybe turn the tide of the war is, is too dramatic a statement, but they, they could really uh, take it to the Union war effort. And you point out that convinced that the markets of Asia and its 600 million consumers promised a vast new frontier for their plantation economy. Slaveholders devised a set of initiatives to harness the Pacific trade. They sought nothing less than a global web of cotton commerce stretching from the docks of Liverpool in one direction to the trading houses of Canton in the other. Europe at this point was moving away from slavery in the early 19th century, actually. Did, did nations have any reluctance to trade with the South because of its continuing practice of chattel slavery? They probably wish they did, but the, the fact of the matter was the American cotton trade was just far too lucrative for uh, major European powers to give up. Um, so they scolded slaveholders on the one hand while taking their cotton with the other. Um, and Southerners in turn looked to Europe. They, they looked to places like the Caribbean, to places like Jamaica, and saw that the, that the British were actually importing uh, tons and tons of uh, Asian contract laborers to work on plantations in the Caribbean. And they said, aha, see, free labor doesn't pay in these plantation economies. You need unfree labor of some sort, whether that's enslaved Africans or these indentured Chinese workers or Asian workers. Um, you, it's, it's unfreedom that's going to rule the world. And from a certain perspective in the 1850s, it looked like they were entirely wrong. And you point out how slaveholders achieved some notable successes within the Pacific world. By the mid-1840s, they had extended the Monroe Doctrine to Hawaii and opened new Asian ports for slave-grown staples, securing cotton's place as the leading U.S. export to China. So to what extent, then, did slavery 
drive the expansion of U.S. territorial gains in the Pacific? Are, are U.S. territories in the Pacific right now a legacy of slavery? Yeah, that's that's provocative. I never went that far in the book, um, but I, I do point out that slaveholders were really interested in Hawaii. I mean, Hawaii during the 1850s was still sort of nominally independent. A whole bunch of foreign powers wanted to lay claim to it, and the United States eventually did, of course. Um, and slaveholders looked at Hawaii and said, hey, this, this looks familiar. We have all sorts of... Um, you know, super brutalized non-white workers uh, tending to these large sugar plantations. We know a thing or two about that, um, and so they they sort of saw Hawaii as uh, as a as a stepping stone and a greater imperial slaveholding imperial dominion in the Pacific. I mean, there weren't actually that many white Southern slaveholders in Hawaii at the time, um, but it was it was certainly on their agenda. So, did slavery? end in these territories and colonies of the U.S. and the Pacific when slavery ended in the South with the end of the Civil War? Because I'm wondering to what extent you may see that legacy of slavery's expansion in the Pacific by Southern slaveholders prior to the Civil War in the U.S. Pacific labor relations today. Is the prevalence, for instance, of sweatshops for uh, a legacy of U.S. slavery exported to the Pacific? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that that all sorts of coercive labor relations not only in the Pacific, but across the world, are just the, the legacy of, of slavery, not just in the United States, but you know, all imperial powers. Um, the, I mean, to come back to your question about like the end date of American slavery, I mean, we're taught that it's 1865, right? The 13th Amendment and then the end of the Civil War emancipates uh, 4 million enslaved African-Americans. And that's true and, and fundamentally important. But then, you know, you look to, to a place like New Mexico and you see thousands of Native Americans still laboring in various forms of bondage. Um, so the 13th Amendment didn't do a whole lot for them. I know we're getting away from the Pacific here, but it just goes to show that the, the traditional end date of slavery in American history textbooks isn't quite as clean and tidy as we'd like to imagine. And you write how slaveholders also waged a campaign to construct a transcontinental railroad during the, or through the Deep South and into California that abolitionists ominously dubbed the Great Slavery Road. A Pacific uh, Railway, white Southerners argued, would funnel their plantation goods across the continent and to the sea lanes beyond. So the story we are always told, though, is that the North believed in the technology of railroads, while the South chose to continue focusing on rivers for trade, a story that reinforces a belief that the South made poor, even backwards decisions, thus losing the Civil War. How is the South and slavery understood differently when we understand their more continental vision for slavery? What happens when slaveholders are seen as unsophisticated yokels instead of scheming masterclass? Yeah, I mean, we have this this image of this sort of typical Southern planter in the 1850s as this like Colonel Sanders-esque aristocrat reading musty copies of Walter Scott. Um, but it's just as likely that he was um, sort of profoundly interested in modern technology and capitalist accounting methods and thought really, really seriously about how you marry technology and slavery. Um, and one of the ways you do that is by building railroads. Um, so the South was, was industrializing at a really rapid clip in the 1850s. I, I think if the South had won independence, it would have been I think the fourth most industrially sophisticated nation in the world. I mean, it had more uh, railroad track mileage than any European power. Um, 
And Southerners thought that if they could just build a railroad across the country through slave country uh, and into New Mexico and California, that they would control the main commercial artery in the United States. And, and that would have been the case. Um, we don't usually think of slaveholders as railroad entrepreneurs for a few reasons. One is that sort of stereotype that I mentioned. And another is the fact that a transcontinental railroad never got built in, prior to the Civil War. Um, it took until after the war itself. Um, so this is something I describe in the book as a monumental non-event. Uh, the railroad didn't get built. And so not many people think much, of, not many historians even think much about uh, the transcontinental railroad debates of the 1850s. They're not very sexy, um, but they were really, really important. I mean, this was the major uh, political wedge issue of the era. Um, and, it, and it triggered a whole lot of other political issues that were related to it. You write that although rising political tensions prevented either section from constructing a transcontinental railroad during the antebellum uh, period, slaveholders achieved the next closest thing by fixing the nation's major overland mail road along a far southern route. I found this really fascinating because there's the story of the Pony Express, which only operated for 16 months, and that was from 1860 to 1861. But that was a more northern route from northwestern Missouri at St. Joseph to the northern uh, California capital of Sacramento. How were slaveholders trying to spread slavery and its trade through the mail? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I like that. I wish I used it in the book. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Pony Express because it's this thing of frontier legend. But in fact, the Pony Express was a direct northern response to this southern overland mail road. So the biggest, most expensive, most important overland mail road in antebellum America went through the south and went into California directly across the route that Southerners preferred for a transcontinental railroad. This was a huge deal in the 1850s that they actually won this route for the south. Um, and uh, it, it was only made obsolete really by Northern opposition and then the Civil War itself. And, and so th this Overland Mail Road ran for years, whereas the Pony Express, as you said, only ran for a bit over one year. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, it makes for better reading, I guess, the history of the Pony Express than this sort of slow meandering Overland Mail Road, but it wasn't nearly as important politically or commercially. We are speaking with historian Kevin Waite. He is author of West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin A. Waite. That's Kevin A. Waite with an E on the end. You write that the federal government, and more specifically the executive branch, was the primary mechanism through which Southerners extended their influence over the far west. From 1853 to 1861, pro-slavery Democrats controlled the executive. Presidents Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan, although natives of free, free states, appointed slave-holding partisans to key cabinet positions, a gesture to the Southern voters who, voters who secured their elections. Before I ask the question I have written down, was this an attempt by Pierce and Buchanan at bipartisanism? Yeah, this was an attempt to uh, reach out to the, to the South that really 
won them the election and to prove that they had their sort of pro-slavery bona fides, that they could be trusted with the votes of white Southerners. Um, and it goes back to that patronage issue that we were talking about earlier. The, the best way to reward your friends was to put them in these big positions where they'd collect nice, big, fat salaries. And so that's exactly what these guys did. And that's precisely why the South was able to exercise political influence disproportionate to you know, their, the, the size of their population. So was it U.S. policy leading up to the Civil War to expand the South's influence as well as the slave trade and the market and goods produced through slavery? Yeah, I I would say to a large extent it was. Um, I mean, it wasn't just, you know, Southern slaveholders that benefited from the expansion of U.S. borders and the growth of the cotton trade. I mean, a lot of people were making money on this on this commerce. Um, and a lot of Americans, n- North and South alike, supported um, sort of imperial expansion. So I, I don't mean to suggest in the book that you know every time the United States engages in uh, an imperial enterprise in the 1850s that it's that it's Southerners and Southerners only who are calling the shots. That's I think one of the reasons why um, their their political agenda was so successful, at least for a time, is because they were able to. Um, to build support in places beyond the South. You also point out that uh, despite abolitionist claims that an economy rooted in slavery would wither under its intrinsic inefficiencies, this vision proved remarkably durable and distinctly modern, that is, of slavery. So, So what was the more guiding force within the debate over slavery, economics or morality? Was the major problem with slavery its inefficiency or was it the sin of slavery? Ooh, that's a good question, Chuck. Um, I mean, for the, the cop-out answer is it was different for different people. Um, but there weren't that many uh, Americans in the 1850s who who believed in in perfectly equal rights for African Americans. Um, everybody, by our understanding, basically was a white supremacist of some sort. Um, it's just who gets to exercise power. Um, that was the question at root for a lot of people and a lot of white Northerners who didn't really care that much about the plight of uh, enslaved African-Americans just didn't want to see the South expand their sphere of influence because they knew that it would mean sort of diminishing influence for their own political agenda. You mentioned that slaveholders and their allies fought within Congress and the legislative capitals of the Southwest to preserve unfreedom in its various guises and locales. According to their logic, American slavery was not the peculiar institution of the South alone, as some claimed. It was a transcontinental regime. Did we simply not know or do we intentionally view slavery as a peculiar institution in an attempt to not recognize how slavery and slaveholders intentions were far bigger than we want to know? Is this intentional on our part or not? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it, it may be. Uh, I think there's a good deal of truth to that claim. Um, that, I mean, it, it's it's far easier to sort of quarantine the problem of slavery and the 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 legacies and the racial strife that emerged from that to the South and to sort of say that's a uniquely Southern problem, but we don't have that problem elsewhere in the United States. Sure, we have other problems, but it's it's slavery that belongs to the South. But you don't have to scratch that far below the surface of this history to find that it was and it, it, that the influence of slavery was everywhere. And let's talk about that influence, because you point out that not all elements of the slaveholding project for the West 
were themselves imperialist. Southerners' uh, canny exploitation of patronage networks, for instance, were acts of political expansion, but not of empire, properly understood. Furthermore, the concept of the continental South refers to a sphere of slaveholding influence rather than a distinct imperial dominion. Why is that distinction between a sphere of influence and imperialism important? How are they different, and why is that important to recognizing to recognize in our understanding of slaveholder plans for the whole continent. Mm. Yeah, it, it's sometimes a fine distinction. Um, it, it has to be rooted in a really in a more sophisticated understanding of what imperialism and what empire are. And I wanted to make that distinction clear in this book because, frankly, I think I was guilty of blurring the lines between mere expansion and imperialist expansion and, and some stuff I had written before. Um, and so there, there were uh, initiatives that were sort of overtly imperialist, like invading Mexico, for instance. But then there were expansionist initiatives that were uh, that maybe didn't infringe directly on another political polity's sovereignty. And that's really, I think, where the distinction lies. But they, they can be expansionist nonetheless. So you can put your friends in these patronage positions and you could expand your influence that way. But that's not necessarily imperialist. I love the ways in which you point out that you can see some of this legacy still remaining in the West today. You write that by uncovering the Old South in unexpected places beyond the cotton fields and sugar plantations that exemplify the region. And you bring together histories that are often divorced in the popular mind with consequences for how we understand politics and race to this day. How and where do you see that impact revealing itself to this day? It was, it was maybe most prominent and recognizable in California until very, very recently. Um, so California, as most people seem to think, is this sort of bastion of cultural pluralism and progressive policymaking. But in fact, California had more Confederate monuments than any other state, any other free state. Um, there were there were more than a dozen monuments and place names in California in California that honored the Confederacy. Um, uh, most of them have been taken down or renamed. Um, uh, a lot of them in the in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Um, but of course, it's not only monuments that that the that the long influence of slavery can be seen. I mean, it's it's in the it's in the racial policies of the West. Um, it's in, I guess it's also, it's, it's in myths and stories that Westerners like to tell, you know, like you said, at the beginning of the show, it's this landscape of rugged individualists, but that's, that's just not, it's not tenable. And we'll get to that in just a moment, but I, I've got to ask you about this because you mentioned the largest Confederate monument in the country is neither carved in stone nor cast in bronze. It's paved in asphalt. The 54-mile stretch of highway between Selma and Montgomery is just a small portion of a road system named in honor of the rebel commander-in-chief. Stretches of Jefferson Davis Highway run for hundreds of miles through the south while dozens of markers to the original road dot states across the country from Virginia through the old cotton belt, then westward across Texas and into California, a Confederate monument that spans much of the continent. The Jefferson Davis Highway is the apotheosis of lost cause revisionism. Have you heard any discussion or is there any movement to change the Jefferson Davis Highway's name? There are initiatives to, to uh, up 
route parts of the Jefferson Davis Highway. But what makes it such a difficult monument to to remove altogether is that it stretches across the jurisdictions of so many different states. And some states aren't going to do anything about the name of the Jefferson Davis Highway, mostly states in the South. Uh, Other states, uh, New Mexico, California, have taken away a lot of these markers um, just in the last couple of years. Um, But it's going to be a long, hard fight, and it's going to be done piecemeal. I mean, it's not like like any other Confederate monument in the country where you can either remove it or let it stay. Um, there, it, it's just, it's too big and there are too many different parts to it. You also point out that this is so weird in tribute to the antebellum railroad campaigning. Several of these California monuments celebrate Davis as the father of national highways. Davis may have failed to construct a great slavery road, but his ghost now graces a great rebel highway. So how is Davis the founder of National Highways, are, are the United uh, Daughters of the Confederacy, which is the organization that was behind the early 20th century program to have highways names changed to make a contiguous Jefferson Davis Highway, were, are they giving a hat tip to Davis and the Confederacy's plan for a great slavery road? I, I think they were. I'm glad you caught that, Chuck, because it's really bizarre. I mean, nobody in their right mind would actually consider Jefferson Davis the father of National Highways. Um, but the guy was an avid proponent of this great slavery road during the 1850s. And and he actually um, spearheaded uh, uh, several Pacific Railroad surveys when he was the Secretary of War. Um, So, I mean, it's true, yes, that that Jefferson Davis was really interested in infrastructure, primarily as a way of expanding slavery across the continent. Um, But the father of highways is a bit of a stretch. I mean, Davis, this is also a funny bit of trivia. Um, Davis was the architect behind this bizarre American scheme to import camels into the Southwest, because he thought if you could use, he called them the ships of the desert. You can use camels instead of horses uh, to basically put down uh, Native American resistance in the Southwest to beat back the Apaches and the the Comanches uh, and extend American sovereignty over this region. And then through that means slavery can sort of leak across the continent. Um, So he imported something like 100 camels into into Texas uh, and then eventually New Mexico and California before the Civil War. Um, and, And... some of those camels were, or the descendants of those camels were spotted decades after sort of roaming the desert. The, the project never really went anywhere, but it's another example of just how, I guess you could call them resourceful. Some of these white Southerners were in trying to push forward their plans for expansion into the West. You know what I kept thinking about, and I'm sure that you've seen these too. Uh, I couldn't help think about how more than once in my life, I've seen streets named Slave Road, or Old Slave Road. So I looked up where I saw it because I couldn't remember if it was in Southern Illinois or if it was in Wisconsin. I couldn't couldn't remember. Lo and behold, there are many slave and old slave roads across the United States. <laughs> Some are controversial, while others are celebrated by descendants of slavery. Should slave roads be renamed? Hmm. I'd say on, on that score, you should take it uh, case by case. Um, uh, you, you see that a lot in, in California, too, now that you mention it. Um, I mean, 
a, a lot of these place names used to carry much nastier names, words that I'm not going to repeat. Uh, and it's possible that Slave Road was sort of the the compromise name that they that they came up with after. And, and in a lot of cases, it was because like one black man moved to the region, and then they decided that that was that was the name that this this road or this part of the map would bear. So I should be happy that my street is not called Blind Man Road, I guess. Uh, (laughs) So you write the newest and largest Confederate monument in California, a nine-foot pillar in an Orange County cemetery. Met a similar end to other monuments. Erected in 2004, the monument bore the names of numerous rebels, including some like Stonewall Jackson, who had never set foot in California. A hundred-foot crane lifted it from the cemetery grounds in August 2019, purging California of its most audacious Confederate tribute. Again, that was erected in 2004. Who was behind that monument being erected in this century? Yeah, isn't that wild? Um, and and at the unveiling of this monument, uh, all these Orange County dudes dressed in their Confederate gray and took photos in front of the thing. It was like a big cookout for them. Um, uh, it, it was a local uh, Confederate Memorial Association um, that erected it. Um, and, and it didn't really attract all that much attention in 2004. I think that's one of the reasons why you could erect so many Confederate monuments in California prior to probably prior to Charlottesville, uh, is, is they didn't generate that much attention. It's only recently that people started writing about them and thinking really seriously about what these monuments meant. You also point out that the Republican, um, how there was a different way in which the uh, Civil War ended for the South and for the West. The plantation South had been shattered, but elements of the Continental South lived on in the 21st century. California's Confederate monuments and place names spoke to the enduring, often overlooked, hold of the Old South in the Far West. So post-war, was the power of white supremacy challenged in the Southeast any different than how it was being challenged in California? Did the federal government really focus on the South and kind of give California and the West a pass? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, I mean, white supremacy could almost spread in more insidious ways in the far west um, because it wasn't it, it wasn't sort of an, an issue of federal concern as was or as were the former Confederates in the in the South during the Reconstruction era. Um, so actually you get the emergence of, or I, I guess I uncovered the emergence of the KKK in California in the late 1860s. Um, and they, it was basically a copycat organization. They saw the effect that Klansmen were having in the South, and they directed similar tactics, not against African-Americans, because there weren't that many in California at the time, but against Chinese immigrants. Um, so the Klan in California got going sort of as, a, as an anti-Chinese campaign. Um, and, you know, there were, there were dozens of attacks on, uh, on Chinese workers in the state during the time. Um, and, and they sort of floated under the radar uh, because they weren't as numerous and, and maybe they weren't as uh, threatening as the Klansmen in the South. But, I mean, they certainly were threatening to the communities that they attacked. And you point out that the West, as it exists in the American imagination and even in much historical literature, lies far beyond the shadow of slavery. The most enduring images of the 19th century frontier feature white pioneers and rugged individualists leaving behind the political schisms that convulsed the eastern half of the country. So is the myth of the West a West that erases slavery of the indigenous and those of African descent? Are Westerns an idealized 
United States that was untouched by the peculiar institution, the institution of slavery, which turns out to not be so peculiar at all. Yeah, I got to say, Chuck, if we ever do an audio book of this book, uh, you're you're the reader. This is great. Um, yeah, I think that's part of the myth of the West. Um, it's a it's a convenient myth. It's a nice story. Um, it's it's about I mean, it's a Clint Eastwood story. It's a John Wayne story. And so that story doesn't have a whole lot of room for slaveholders because it's just so fundamentally opposed to this foundational myth of the United States and the West. Um but I think we're more and more people are coming to recognize that slavery was um, was you know reached far beyond the American South. Um, it's not something I ever learned about when I was a, a kid growing up in California. I mean, I had great teachers, no disrespect to them, but we we just never discussed the history of slavery in California because I don't think it was on anybody's radar. So I had to go do a PhD in Pennsylvania to learn about slavery in California. But like I say, I think more and more people are coming to recognize this history. And I think the John Wayne, Clint Eastwood myth of the West is is eroding slowly, but surely it's eroding. And from that myth, you write from uh, Thomas Jefferson to Frederick Jackson Turner to popular portrayals today. The West has come to symbolize fresh starts and uh, forward progress. These pioneer tropes obscure the ways in which slavery and its legacies radiated outward from the old plantation districts, instead placing the source of the nation's racial problems squarely in the Southeast. Was that the intent of Jefferson and Turner? Were those histories meant to be a kind of propaganda that censors slavery from U.S. history? Hmm. I'd say that somebody like Jefferson was obviously eager to um, avoid the question of slavery whenever he could, uh, because for him it was such a personal issue. Yeah. Um, but in, in in his ideal America, uh, slavery wasn't going to reach West with these guys. Um, I don't think he, he he didn't think through the repercussions as seriously as he should have, um, and likely to happen. Um, and then people like Frederick Jackson Turner, who sort of characterized the American West as the as the birthplace, or not the birthplace, but it, it's the nursery of American democracy. Um, uh, uh, I don't know if he, if he simply didn't know about the history of slavery in the West, or if it wasn't important enough to him, and it didn't sort of jive with the, with the thesis that he was making. One last question for you, Kevin. We have been speaking with Kevin Waite. He is a historian and author of West of Slavery, the Southern Dream of a Con uh, Transcontinental Empire. While this is Kevin's first book, he's already at work on his second with co-author Sarah Berenger Gordon, a book that reconstructs the life and times of Biddy Mason, a Georgia slave turned California real estate entrepreneur called The Long Road to Freedom, Biddy Mason and the Making of Black Los Angeles. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin A. Waite. That's Kevin A. Waite with an E at the end. One last question for you, Kevin. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And it has nothing to do with what kind of bird, the beautiful bird song we've been hearing throughout this interview was, because that's really beautiful. At first, I thought, at first, I thought it was a ringtone, and I was like, wow, that is the best ringtone ever. So here's my question from hell for you. You write, as Thomas Jefferson famously claimed, the West belonged to white yeomen whose economic independence and agrarian virtues would usher forth an empire of liberty. Roughly a century later, Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis provided scholarly validation for the stories that Americans felt or tell about the West. Per 
purportedly free from the squabbles over slavery that convulsed the eastern half of the country, Turner's frontier was the nursery of republicanism and virtuous self-sufficiency. Meanwhile, a pervasive pop culture industry, beginning with dime novels and then migrating to the silver screen, embellished these myths of a free and vigorous white frontier. So to what extent do you think white supremacy depends upon that foundation of a mythical history. And as that is accepted history in so many classrooms across the United States, to what degree can we change the history that white supremacy made up and depends upon? Mm. Well, I'll, I'll give an answer I think that, that Marx would like, at least the start of it, um, and that's know your history. Um, learn this history and the historical processes that give rise to the sort of conditions we're living in today. Um, and, I, and I think there is a silver lining here, Chuck. I mean, um, uh, we're living in a much better world now than, than we had in, in 1850s America. Um, so whenever I get especially sort of uh, beaten down by the depressing topics that I study, it's nice to step into the, into the modern world. I mean, all the problems that we have notwithstanding. Um, but if, if we look back, we can see that, you know, progress has been made um, and, we're, and we're reaching desperately towards a better future. Uh, we got a long way to go, um, but learning about the past, learning about the mistakes that we've made uh, and learning about some of the, the advances too that we've made is I think a step in the right direction. Um, you know, identifying white supremacy is is part of the path to curing it. Kevin, I cannot thank you enough. This is a fantastic book, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Kevin Waite is author of West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin A. Waite with an E at the end. Thanks so much for being on our show. Thanks so much, Chuck. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. Alex, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners responding? This week's question from hell is, what have you been right about this whole time? What have you been right about this whole time? Aaron B. says that I'm never right about anything. <laughs> David Z. says that I've been wrong the whole time. Damn, Dave, <laughs> David and Aaron should uh, get together. There. Uh, Bobby A. says third wave ska is good. Really? Uh, as according to Bobby A. I'm All not right. taking a position there. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey D. says that Chevy Chase is still a dick. <laughs> I say that on the, do I need to cut that out of the radio? No. no. More work. Yeah. Uh, Mark C. says a whole lot of Americans are truly stupid. There's a whole lot of other people here that are pretty stupid, Mark A. Uh, what have you been right about this whole time? What have you been right about this whole time? KDB says that it's not over till it's over. <laughs> Sloan L. says white supremacy. Daniel L. says everybody is stupid. <laughs> Louis D. says, shaken, not stirred, means buying less equipment. And finally, Ladio says, nothing cleans quite like fire. And pessimists <laughs> kick optimists half-full glasses right on their asses. It's like a Wesley Willis lyric. Yeah, <laughs> you okay over there, Laddie? Uh, it's because that Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they've paused it. Now he's freaking out because his whole neighborhood's going to go to hell as the manufacturing site is right across the street. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Uh, really excited to have Lala Khalili back on to talk about her Noema piece, Apocalyptic Infrastructures. So it's Noema? I mean, I'm just saying that <laughs> confidently. I want to know why. Uh, it, it's, I'm very uncool, I think, because I don't know what that is a reference to. And what about Thursday show? Uh, still working on that one. I got a bunch of requests. So. But Jeffy. Oh, yeah. 
Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth is back this week, and we're hoping to get through the Moment of Truth live this week without uh, Jeff having any phone problems. Thank you, Alex, for editing in the full Moment of Truth at the end of the podcast. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Kevin Waite, our guest this morning. And by the way, that book really is great. If you are in any way, a, you think you're a Civil War buff or anything like that, you don't understand the Civil War at all unless you read West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing today's show. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. Demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>